Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome your stud cast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio. 93 years, four generations. Hello, Studland, and welcome to another edition of Your Studcast. What we do is for you, it is of you, it is by you, it is a part of you. It is the great sport of wrestling through the eyes of the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller, who is a part of the lineage of the Fuller wrestling family spanning the globe. And that's exactly what we intend to do on episode six here of your stud cast. And the first thing, stud, as I welcome you in, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Tony. So happy to be here, man. Let's, I'm ready for another ride. No question, my friend. Let's, let's thank some people. Can we hear? We've got a list of folks to thank. Uh, first of all, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin's been so wonderful toward us, so generous toward us in recent weeks. And boy, it's just great to have a guy like that out there spreading the word for you. Yes, it is. Close personal friend of mine has been since, gosh, I'm on I'm 1970. We're getting close to 50 years as friends. One of the great talents in the, in the sport and great booker, smart guy, really, really intelligent guy and, and a great guy. Another guy we want to thank here is Jim Cornette, who as a young radio host, he would come sit in my studio uh, back in the mid 90s and talk about the early 90s and talk about Smoky Mountain and some of his shows and we were always helping him promote what he was doing and he understood early on that I understood the business but the man would make me feel so terrible about myself because that guy has the obviously the book of put downs that can really make you look in the mirror and go well geez I am ugly but Jim Cornette has been wonderful to you and that appearance you did on his show where you talked about the double cross here in Knoxville back in the late 70s early 80s was terrific radio kudos to you man that was a great appearance that you did with Corny and also Brian Last well thank you very much I really enjoyed it Jim and I our paths didn't cross a whole lot the first time I met Jim he gave me an award in 1978. We had a fan convention. It was in conjunction with the world championship match that I wrestled Harley Race. Fans from across America met in Knoxville. They stayed in the hotel there. And Jim was one of the fans who was in that hotel. And when we talked the other day, he reminded me of it. He says, Ron, he goes, I was there. He goes, I went to the matches. He said, y'all gave us tickets to the matches. He said it was a tremendous event. He was very complimentary. That guy has a real talent. He is really a talented guy and a great guy. He and I got back together in 2000. He was training guys for WWE, and I was running a little wrestling program at Chilhowee Park called uh, SmackDown 2000. And Jim was bringing talent he was working on to develop for WWE and wrestling for me and managing some of those guys. It's great to talk to Jim and it's great to be on his program. I can't wait to get to some of that stuff as we make our way. And that's going to be probably years down the road as we make our way to some of those days. Because as a radio guy, I was helping you promote that as well. But of course, that was when the incident with the Landell happened. And it's one of the great stories of all time. Corny's told it, but I want to hear it through your eyes. And that's what we're going to do on here. Also, the folks at WrestlingStories.com have been very good to you 
as well. Yes, very good. I had a three-hour podcast, straight, no breaks, and I really enjoyed it. We covered, gosh, I don't know how much territory we covered. We just talked everywhere, in every direction. Bobby Matthew, I think the name was, he's a writer there, and he handled the entire podcast, did a great job. I had question after question. It It was really interesting for me. I really appreciate being on those guys' program. These things are new to me. I've not been like a lot of other wrestlers and running around and doing people's podcasts here and there. I'm trying to be relevant again, and I want to make myself available. I've done others, too. I think you've got another name probably that you may mention that I've done his podcast as well. Yeah, and that leads me to Austin Idol, who, with Brian Last, have been terrific supporters of what you're doing. And Brian has said tremendous things about you on his 605 podcast, which is an absolute must-listen for anybody that enjoys uh, this type of conversation and Austin Idol's podcast as well is excellent. Your appearance on there was great, and they were just so good to you. It's just just such a great spirit around this podcast community, especially for those that really get how great this sport is. But both of those guys have been very good to you. Definitely have. I've enjoyed talking to Brian. Uh, In fact, uh, I'm soon to be on his program, his 605. And my podcast with Austin Idol, I think I tore those guys apart because I somehow they got me off on the chisel, Ron Wright's chisel. And then that went to Ron Wright's airplane and the trips that I flew with Ron Wright. It was, I think I laughed maybe as much as they did. And they laughed through the entire podcast. It was fun. It was just literally a lot of fun, and I really, really had a great time. See, when you say Ron Wright's name, you make the bell uh, in our studio here ring, as you can hear it. Ron Wright, an absolute classic, and we will do, a no question, a podcast or two or three on the life and times of Ron Wright before it's over, because that's the one thing about the business that you were in, the business that your family basically started, It's just full of characters, man. And where there are characters, there are stories. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Characters make stories. That's where stories come from. There's the crazy guys that were in this business. And we're all a little... little ditzy you know we've we've been we've been dropped on our heads a few too many times and uh a few of us talk about having concussions you know i don't know what my future holds for me but uh, i'm like most of the others i've done my share of hard ways and and i have been i've been out many times and uh so you know it it you're dealing with a different mentality and a different type of athlete when you talk to wrestlers. When we left in our last podcast, as we are in episode seven, chronologically speaking, we're in the late fifties now. You are a child, and go ahead and pick it up. You wanted to share some stories with us. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit today about how Robert and I were raised, and I think this says a lot about. The mentality of my dad, it goes back to Roy. The way Roy raised my dad, I think, is similar to the way that that dad raised us, except I think dad may have been a little more difficult and a little more hard on us than, than we were, than he was under Roy's tutelage. But what happened is my dad moved us in 54 to Mobile, Alabama. We stayed in Mobile for two years, lived in the city, Play, you know, had friends and neighborhood, that type of thing. But we didn't do anything. And my dad was the type of guy that wanted us to have to work. So instead of letting us lay around and play football down at the park or whatever it may be, ride bicycles, he he went out and bought a 300-acre plot halfway between Mobile, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida on Highway 90, major thoroughfare through there. And it was in a town called Loxley, L-O-X-L-E-Y, little small town on Highway 90. They bought 300 acres of land that was not cleared. And some of it was swamp. Some of it was higher ground. 
and he he wanted to he, he he I think he bought it with us in mind. He says, "I'm gonna give these boys something to do. I'm gonna work their butts off, and I'm gonna make tough guys out of them." And he started that process when he bought this farm. And my dad was a strange guy. He was being very successful. Things had lit up there on the Gulf Coast. He was doing big business all the way into Louisiana, New Orleans, and the other big cities over there. And he he was he didn't know how to where to put his money. Literally, he had a nightclub, so he bought a nightclub, and in the nightclub he had a safe, and all of his income was cash. He won his wrestling matches. Everybody paid cash. There was no credit cards back in those days, and he would just take that cash and put it into paper sacks like bags that you get at a grocery store and throw it in there, just throw it in there, throw it in there, throw it. I don't even know if he counted it. I one one time saw him open the safe and there were probably 40 bags, brown, like from the grocery store bags in there. And, and I didn't know there was even money in it. So he buys this 300 acre farm and he takes me to the closing with him. And he, he has a, with him, when we go and get in the car, he has a sheet and it's round like Santa Claus, like a bag Santa Claus would carry on his back. It kind of looked familiar to that to me as I remember it. And we went to the closing and we're at the closing table and they're passing around the documents and everybody's signing things. And then they get to the part where the guys at the table, the knees or whatever, and they say, uh, okay, Mr. Welch, it's time for yeah, to get your check. The cashier's check, what did you bring? You know, uh, then he takes like Santa Claus, <laughs> he takes the big, huge sheet full of cash and it's not strapped, it's not counted. He pours it down the entire length of the conference table. There's probably six guys on each side, two guys at the end, and the money starts falling off into the floor. And the guys' are, mouths are all open. They're like, what in the world is this? And I think he bought it for $30,000. This is probably 1957, let's say. So they're just like, what do we do with all this? You know? And he says, there's $30,000 there. And they said, well, it's not strapped even. I mean, how are we going to count it? And they, some of it was hundreds. Some of it was 20s. Some of it was 10s. Some of it was fives. So this short closing that they expected to have for this property sale turned in to be a four-hour event because they started then trying to collect the bills and trying to pile them up and then trying to count them individually. It was Dad's, he didn't know how to handle as much money. He was making money faster than he could than he could put it out there. So he buys the property, and then he says, I want to buy a bulldozer. And he's talking to somebody. I can't remember who it was. He said, I want to buy a bulldozer. And so the guy turns him on to a place to buy a bulldozer. So uh, he takes me along on the ride. He goes to this big John. It was this big Caterpillar dealer. And he gets on a couple of different bulldozers, and he finally gets a D6, which is a pretty nice big bulldozer. He don't know anything about bulldozers. He just knows that he's got to clean this 300 acres. he got to give us some work to do. So uh, he buys the bulldozer. And then he asked the guy, he says, how do I get the bulldozer to, to my farm? And the guy says, well, we'll put it on a low boy. We got a truck here and a low boy trailer and we'll load her on the low boy. So dad says, well, how much is the low boy? And the guy says, well, hell, uh, you know, you're paying cash for the bulldozer. You want to buy a low boy? He says, yeah, I want to buy the truck and the trailer. I want to have something to carry my dozer where I need to. So he ends up buying right there in cash a bulldozer and a truck and a low boy trailer to haul the dozer with. They have to haul it for him because we got to, we're in a vehicle and we follow them back. They pull the dozer to this place. There was just enough ground cleared to, for him to pull it off the highway. And they, they say, okay, thank you very much. They shake his hand, and they get in the car. Somebody's following along behind us. They get in that car. They take them back to their the, the Caterpillar dealer, and 
he, for the first time, realizes he don't know how to run a bulldozer. He can't get it off the trailer because he's never run a bulldozer. So he gets up on the bulldozer and he starts trying to figure out the forward gears, the back gears, how to get the pan up, how to get the the front up, the back. I mean, he's just he I'm like watching him and like, oh, God, he's going to kill himself right here. Just trying to get this thing off of the trailer. So he backs her off the trailer and he begins to push over trees. And from that beginning this 300-acre piece of property turns into one of the show places along that highway. And that highway runs across America from Jacksonville straight across America. I don't know even where it ends, in, but it ends in California. And we, on that property, he built five lakes. He built three houses. He built a rodeo arena. He put in 600 pecan trees. We actually had a rodeo stock. We had the Brahma bulls and the and the steers for dogging, and he just became he he had developed himself another life. He was a wrestler and trying to run a wrestling business, but now he was he was into everything. He was learning how to run a bulldozer, and he would take us. He would push the trees over, and we'd have to go along behind and get the small things, and we would pile them up in a big pile and start just throwing in little stumps and little pieces of wood and cutting down what we couldn't pick up and with an axe. And then he would come along and push the big trees on top of those piles. And he would pile trees 50 feet high and run that bulldozer up the top of them. Uh, one day, the, he has the, the big blade on the front or the, the, the uh, thing on the front that you push with. And a tree was tree limb was getting bent back. I could see it. He didn't see it, but it was getting bent back. He had no pay, had no top on this dozer. And uh, I could see that that limb was slowly rising up that the scoop there in the front and it was going to, it was going to hit him. So I was trying to get his attention. I never could, but he's, he's probably 30 feet straight up going up the pile and it comes off there and hits him in the forehead and knocks him off of the bulldozer. He goes off backwards in the pile of wood. Now the dozer is still climbing. It's still going up. So I'm, I'm nine years old, I guess. And you know, so I got to do something. I don't know how to run a bulldozer, but I climb on the back. I get, I catch the back of the dozer and I'm able to get up on the back of it enough to get in the seat. And I start pulling levers enough that I find the brake and it stops and lodges itself up there. He's laying maybe 30 feet. He's out cold laying 30 feet below me. And me and Rob, we go over to pick him up. It's just kind of how we, he would, he made us work and he would make us work with the crews. He would bring in guys and hire them and pay them by the hour. And then when he had to go to wrestling, which was in the afternoons, he would tell these crews, he would say, you follow these boys right here, work as hard as they do, and y'all just keep clearing land. We were clearing land day after day, month after month for seemed like an eternity. And one time, this is how he, we were raised. One time, we got in a fight. Me and Rob fought a lot. We were brothers, and it was it was kind of like I guess most brothers. There was a, there was always a little animosity, whatever it was, and we we got into a fight. Dad was there that day. He had left us with his with a crew, and we we're supposed to be working. And when we started fighting, they all quit working. Now they're getting paid to stand and watch us fight. And he comes around the corner of the barn or wherever it was, and he catches us in the middle of the fight. So this is how we were punished back in those days. He says, uh, he says, okay, he stopped that stuff. He gets us stopped. And then he goes, he goes, now these guys are standing here. They're still watching, right? And he goes, all right, Robert, come over here. And he would take his knuckles. He would make a fist and he would take the knuckles and he would pound you in the top of the head. That was, he called it conking your head. He said, come here, boy, lean over here. I'm going to conk your head. This was his punishment. Rather than whipping you with a switch or taking a belt or whatever, he conked your head. I think he got this from Roy and he would 
pound you in the top of the head. I remember that day he hit Rob once. And then when I was there, he hit me once, but I kind of pulled my head back a little bit and he didn't think he got me good. But I had an instant goose egg up there. It popped up within 10 seconds. I had a goose egg on the top of my head that was about two inches thick. And he says, come here. I'm going to do you again. So he pounds me again. These guys watching, they're like, they're just like, wow, what in the heck? I've never seen anything like this. This is terrible. And he pounds me, hits me the second one, and he hits me right on the same spot, and it splits it. So I start bleeding, and it runs down the side of my head, dry my ears. And that's kind of how he punished us or how he took care of us when we weren't doing what we should do. He would do things like the Fields boys came to see us one time, and we had horses because we had uh, all the rodeo stock, and, and we trained horses, and we rode horses. And we had a couple of Shetland ponies, and we rode the Shetland ponies, and he saddled up a horse for him and all three of the Fields brothers. And we've got two lakes there that are built back-to-back. Now, he's built these lakes with his bulldozer and a big pan. He's he's learned how to build lakes and do all this stuff. And he, the lake, it's cold. It's a, it's a real cold winter day. Now, Mobile gets cold, and you wouldn't think down there on the Gulf Coast it gets cold, but the wind blowing, and there's a certain amount of humidity always there. Cold, the temperature really is bone chilling. And we've got coats on and all that stuff. And he was on a dynamite kick. He had gotten into buying dynamite, and we were exploding. We were dynamiting these stumps that he couldn't push with the bulldozer. So he throws a couple of sticks of dynamite in his backpack on his horse. And we get to the lake. It's cold. We got coats on. And he's wanting to show off to the Fields boys. So he puts a cap into a couple sticks of dynamite, a little short fuse. He tosses them into the lake. And you get a couple of big explosions. And a few little fish about uh, two inches long float to And uh, he looks around at me and Rob. I don't know. I guess this is part of the showing off. I couldn't really figure out what this was all about. But he goes, okay, you boys get your clothes off. And then we were like, what do you mean, get your clothes off? We're cold as it is. We got coats on and everything. He said, no, I want you to get your clothes off and swim out there and get those fish for me. So, I mean, it's like a stupid thing. I mean, I couldn't see any reasoning in it, but we did what he said. We got our clothes off. We got down to our underwear. We swam out. We came back with two little handfuls of fish, dropped them at his feet. And he said, okay, put your clothes back on. And uh, we continued the day. It's just a little bit of an idea of how we were raised. This went on for many, many years. He would take us if there were, we we had horses, we had bucking horses, and he would try to train a bucking horse. And you can't hardly train a horse that's been trained to buck. He's You're not going to get him to, to make a riding horse out of him, but he would do it anyway. And we had some riding horses, and we'd want to ride, and he'd say, no, no, come on out here with me to the arena. I want to put you on that bucking horse. And we go, well, no, no, we don't want to ride. We're eight, we're nine, ten years old. We're just small boys. And, yeah, you're going to ride this bucking horse. Well, the horse would obviously he'd buck us off. And then he, we'd put us, he'd say, get up and get on him again. He'd buck us off. Get up and get on him again. I mean, this went on and on and on. And my mom would sometimes be watching. And she would be complaining. She would be bitching. Oh, God, God. She would say stuff like, you're going to kill them boys. You're going to kill those boys. And uh, his line was, and he never failed to change it. He'd say, yeah, but if we do, we'll get another one. And I was like, how in the heck do you get another boy? You know, I didn't even know anything about how you procreated. I didn't know any of that. So that was kind of the way that we were raised in our life, event after event. It was all the way up to we were grown enough that I went to college and and I wasn't in a big hurry to go back home sometimes because when I went home to visit, instead of just him going, hey, let's sit in here and watch some TV by the fire or whatever, it's like, how about we go out here, man, and cut some wood and we'll split some logs. I mean, it's like, whoa, that sounds like fun. I mean, he was 
He wanted to make us tough, I think is why he did so many things to us. And there are a lot more of them. Pretty amazing. He built the lake one time. That, and he put it, the lakes were built with these huge uh, overflow pipes so that when the lake got to a certain level, the water ran into the pipe. It was spring fed, so there was water in there all the time. You didn't have to have rainwater. And uh, it would run the water would run down this, the, this pipe to about 30 feet deep, and then there was an elbow there, and it'd run through the entire dam and out the far side of the dam. And he had put a cover on this pipe. He had built this one lake. It was right behind the house that we'd, uh, he'd built as well. And he sent, he goes and tells me it's cold. It's, it's like Thanksgiving, and it's sleeting outside. And he says, uh, hey, boy, uh, put your bathing suit on. And I'm like, what? A bathing suit? Hey, it's cold out there. He said, just put your bathing suit on. He goes in the kitchen and he gets the biggest butcher knife we have in the in the drawer. And he says, come with me. And we go out on the dam to where the, the big pipe is. It's covered up. Now the water is about a foot higher than the pipe itself. And, and he needs to cut the pipe because it's about to burst the dam. There's so much water in the dam now in the lake so he so he says he says come here <laughs> i walk over there i got a bathing suit on i'm shivering because it's sleeting it's cold and he says open your mouth and he turns the the knife backwards and he shoves it in my mouth and he says swim out there and cut the lid off of that pipe and i'm like oh thinking dad gee are you serious and so i i try to get in the water and it's really cold the water's freezing so i come back out and he grabs me and throws me about halfway to the pipe and so now i'm out there i'm wet so i go on i swim to the pipe so i get out there now the pipe is big it's it's two feet across and he didn't think about what's going to happen when this the, the water is a foot higher than the opening that I'm about to pierce, that it's going to suck me potentially right into that pipe and then Ron's gone. He can get another boy. You know, it's one of those deals where, you know, this is a situation that's going to get very, very dangerous very fast. So I pound through there. I finally slice through the top of that the covering over the pipe and the water starts to rush into the pipe. And when it does, I've got my legs wrapped around the pipe so that I can hold on to it to be able to, with enough force to pop through it with that knife. Then it starts sucking me headfirst straight into the hole, into the pipe. So I try to push off and it's sucking me in. I finally get my body turned around. Now he's screaming on the dam. He's not coming to help. He's saying, hey, boy, push off that pipe. Come on, swim, swim. He don't want to get wet. I'm watching him and I'm thinking, if I'm going to die, is he going to try to save me or not? And I push with my feet off the pipe. And I get about five feet away, and it starts sucking me back. I come back. I get my feet on the pipe again. I'm lucky enough to get it. I do it about three times, uh, and I finally push far enough that I get away from the suction that's going to be created by the pipe there. And he gets down knee-deep in the water. He's about to, about to make the move. I think, well, maybe he was going to come and get me. And uh, that's kind of... Uh, you know, that's kind of a short description of it, but it kind of it kind of lends, lends people to to see uh, how he thought about making you tough. Mm. Was he going to come get you? What do you think? I mean, it, right right now, in, in your mind, as we talk about it all these years later, decades later, was he going to come get you? What do you think? Uh, that's, the, you know, my point is, uh, you know, I, I was thinking that when I was fighting that pipe and I was trying to shove my way away from that pipe and I was watching him thinking that, you know, you're going to, you're going to dive off that dam. You're going to come and save me, you know, uh, aren't you? And, and he never, like I said, he got down with one leg in the water and it was up about knee deep. He had pants on, long pants on. I've got the bathing suit on. I'm the I'm the goofball. You know, he's he's making me do it. And uh, I wondered then, you know, whether he, he, are you going to save me or not? You know, and uh, I really don't know. 
I, you know, I think if I had started in the pipe and I, I, I would have gone, I would have been gone. There was no way I could have kept myself. If I had entered that top part of the pipe, I was going to die because it was a 30 foot drop, then an elbow and, and the 40 foot, uh, run through the bottom of the dam to the far side. Uh, there would be no, we wouldn't be talking today if uh, that day turned out any differently. We all knew before you started to talk here on the Studcast that these were going to be colorful stories, that you had a colorful past. We're going to come back on the other side. We're going to get some, hear from you, and we'll get some stud mail in here. And the upbringing of the stud and of the stud's father, anything but normal. Then again, what is normal? But I do know this. That is anything. <laughs> I can promise you, most people listening to Studcast did not have that type of relationship with their father and weren't asked to do the sorts of things that Ron Fuller, his brother Rob, his cousin Jimmy were asked to do. If you want to ask a question of the stud, you can go on Facebook and find Ron Fuller Welch there. Also, we encourage you, check out the website, ronfullertennesseestud.com. Com. Again, ronfullertennesseestud.com. Also want to encourage you to spread the word throughout Studland, and let's bring more and more folks into this wonderful storytelling that the stud, as he paints the picture here and preserves through time, and we're so blessed that he's doing that. As part of the Studcast, we're going to step away for just a second and come back on the other side as we remind you that you are listening to The Studcast. The Studcast continues in one minute after these important Studcast offers. Attention Studcast fans, thanks to your overwhelming response, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, has taken these incredible Studcast stories to a height never expected this early in the world of online podcasts. Now, you can hear wrestling's number one storyteller document the real story of professional wrestling's history and the first family of wrestling on one of the hottest new independent podcast networks. The true story of the Tennessee Stud is now under exclusive distribution by the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. All Ron Fuller Studcasts are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and Google Play. This means your Studcast is ready to saddle up thousands of new listeners. And from the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and everyone at the Studcast Center, we appreciate your support. And don't forget to tell your friends and any wrestling fan how much fun you're having riding along with the Tennessee Stud. You are back seated ringside on this edition of the Ron Fuller Studcast. And we're back with you on the Studcast, often imitated, never duplicated, as Tony Basilio, along with the great Ron Fuller. It's 93 years, four generations. It's incredible to hear these stories. And today on the Studcast, episode seven, you just heard Ron unpacking his father and what a complicated but yet talented figure that his father is now a great time in the program as we get to some mail and then Ron's going to get back into a couple more stories about his father that are just incredible. I mean, what can you say if you want to ask a question of the stud? RonFullerTennesseeStud.com, a great place to go. Also, join the Facebook page at Ron Fuller Welch on Facebook. And Ron, it's now time to turn it over to the listeners of the Studcast, we always get great questions. So go right ahead with question one. Okay. Uh, before I do, Tony, I, I would like to, you know, maybe maybe some people that are new to the broadcast here, what you do is you can go to my Facebook page, Ron Fuller Welch, and you can ask a question of me there, whatever it is that you want. And uh, we read these every week. We do a few of these every week. We pick a winner, and I send a little prize to the winner. I'm just, I love this segment. We'll go today. We're going to be, first one that comes from a gentleman named Mark Bales. He's in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And he asked, how many times did Ron Wright bust you with his chisel? 
This could turn out to be a long little deal here. I, I don't want to go into too much about the chisel at this point because I want to talk about the chisel as, as time goes by here. But the chisel was a tool that Ron Wright, I think, is the only person that ever developed one of these that would bust you open in a clean gash that in, almost ensured you're going to go to the hospital and be sewn up. There was no doubt if you got hit by that, you were going to be a bloody mess. And it was a wicked-looking tool. When I came to Tennessee in 1974, I didn't have a lot of talent when I started my first company. I had the Wright brothers, Ron Wright, not the people that flew the plane, but he did fly a plane. We'll get to that someday. But Ron and Don Wright were were from Kingsport, Tennessee, and they were historic as being two of the wildest characters in all of wrestling, and Ron especially. So Ron had developed this tool in which he 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 hit people with it, and it, it just it, and guys were afraid of it. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, we mentioned him earlier in the show. Kevin Sullivan was hit with this chisel. Uh, my brother was hit with this chisel. Roy Lee Welch was hit with this chisel. I mean, Ron Wright, he blasted a lot of dudes with this. So he hit me with it. I'm going to be quite honest with this gentleman. He only hit me with it one time. And he had it with him from the day I got there. And he showed it to me. And he says, you know, he talked like that. And he says, I, you know, Ron, he says, I'd like, to, I'd like to hit you with this chisel here and it'll get a lot of blood. And I said, man, I don't want you hitting me with that thing. What the heck? It was a little piece of metal, probably two inches wide, about the distance of across your knuckles. And then on top of it was a steel piece of steel that was three quarters of an inch long, I guess, shaped in a triangle. And he would file it with an emery board. To keep it sharp. It was the darndest, nastiest looking thing I ever saw. So when I, I started, I was wrestling him a lot because I was a heel and he had always been a heel. But because I needed someone to wrestle and someone who was pretty talented and he was, I turned to him and I said, you're going to be the baby face and I'm going to be the heel. And he says, well, I won't hit you with a chisel anyway. I said, no, no. You, I mean, you know, you can't do that because, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the nasty guy here. You know, I shouldn't be using your chisel. So he would, I would tell him then, he would just every week was like, am I going to hit you with a chisel? Am I going to get to hit you with a chisel? I'd say, no, no, no. And so he would bring it in the ring. He would put it in his tights. And during the course of the match, toward the end of the match, I would see him going in his tights to get his chisel. And I'm like, whoa, gee. So I would nail him from behind and I did this to him probably four or five times. I'd nail him from behind and I would take it away from him and I would put it on my hand and I would hit him. And he would, oh, he would be a bloody mess. I mean, it would, he would go, it's hospital time. This probably happened at least four or five times. And then finally, we wrestled in the Coliseum for the first time ever. We had grown out of the Chilhowee Park Arena. And we had just gotten too big for it. And I said, it's time to go to the Coliseum. We put a really good card together, and it was me and Ron Wright. And uh, he asked me, you know, he says, well, we're, here we are in the big building, Ron. It's time for the chisel. And I said, okay, by gosh, you've been asking for this for years. And tonight's my night. Give her to me. So all he did too, I was married and I had a wife that was kind of like my valet and she would, she had been there since the beginning and she, we would sit, I wouldn't wrestle on TV. I would just sit there and she would take notes. And I told her, I said, you know, we're going to be late getting home tonight. And she said, what do you mean? I said, uh, well, he's going to hit me with a chisel. And, and I said, I'm, fully prepared to go to the hospital. I said, we're going to spend some time at the hospital tonight. So she's like, no, no, she'd seen it. She'd seen the damage it does. So in that match, he got me with the chisel and they, he had, I was on my knees and she was behind me and I knew she was back there and he hit me with it. And I squeezed really hard, man, strained, and which you didn't need to. I was already. By the time, and within three seconds, when I turned around to face her, I had blood on my all the way to my knees. 
And she was like, I saw her on the floor. She was like, oh, you could see it in her face. Like, oh, my gosh, almighty jeez. So that's my chisel story. He got me one time. Let me ask you something. You said you would squeeze really hard. Is that like a technique? Because I've never heard anybody say that. Is that a technique you use to make the blood come out quicker? Yeah, yeah. You just, you know, if you're if you're busted, if somebody busts you, uh, you know, and and you're going to bleed, then why the hell not have a lot of blood, you know? So you just kind of force yourself to push, squeeze, and you can you can make uh, you can make that blood come thicker and faster, and it's part of the business. It's the way it was. That was an unusual way of getting it, that's for sure. And and guys hated hated to do that. But a lot of them did, whether they liked it or not. Kevin's case, he got it, and he didn't want it. He got it. He got cut, tied into the ropes and couldn't do anything about it, and Ron got him. That's a that's a pretty good question, though, and only if you were in East Tennessee or you were a Southeastern fan out of Knoxville would you even know what a chisel is. So Mark Bales from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, great question there on the Ron Wright chisel. Question two on our Ask the Stud. This one here is from Cliff Lawson, and this guy's in Knoxville, Tennessee. This question is, who was the craziest individual you ever faced in the ring? Great question. You know, there's a lot of crazy son of a guns in the sport of wrestling. I probably wrestled the craziest of all time in Australia in 71 when I was green. Didn't know anything about how to have a match or what to do. And that guy was George the Animal Steel. And bald-headed, I don't know, for I'll try to describe him for fans that never saw George the Animal Steel. He just recently died. He was bald-headed, had a lot of hair on his body, like a gorilla down there. He had a bulky build. He had a ugly, strange-looking face. And he was prone to do things in the middle of the match that you... I was young, so I really didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle working with George the Animal Steel. And during the course of this match, the reason I remember it is he went over to the turnbuckle, and we'd we'd wrestled a little bit. He had punched me a couple of times, kicked me, thrown me out of the ring, whatever it was. I'm back in the ring, and he leaves me and turns around and goes to the turnbuckle. He starts chewing on the padding of the turnbuckle, biting it, just trying to rip it. He's, He's got it in his mouth, and he's yanking his head back, and I'm standing there. I don't know what to do. Like, what is he doing? And the referee's the same way. He's like, gosh, what do I do? And I, so we stood there like two dummies in the middle of the ring, and he chews. Finally, he rips the cover off of the turnbuckle, and there's some padding inside, and he spits out the top of the cover of the turnbuckle, and he starts chewing the padding. He rips them out a mouthful, and he spits it in the ring, and he rips another out mouthful, and he spits it in the ring. It was like, I could not believe it. So that's my answer for that one. You know, that's a good question, but I don't think there was ever in all of my all of my memory a guy that I wrestled that was as crazy and off the wall as Georgie Animal Steel. And the funny thing about George Steele is they turned him into a cartoon character in the eighties, but people that saw George Steele back in the that sweet spot of the 70s you're talking about saw a guy in the ring who was sadistic, who was unpredictable. And you're saying even as an opponent, you really didn't know what to do with him, especially you at the time as a kid. Now, before that match, does he talk to you at all? Do you guys talk at all? How does he handle a young Tennessee stud? No. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm green. I'm, I'm in Australia He's a star in Australia. He's been there many times, and I'm just a jobber for him. He's going to trounce me. He's going to pound me. He's going to do whatever the hell he wants to do to me. You know, he didn't spend any time talking to me. I introduced myself to him, and I don't think he said his name. I think he was grunting. He grunt. That was all it. That was his name. I thought, that's your name? He's like, you know, go on, get out of here. So no talk prior to it is to go out there and see what we can do. Cliff Lawson, man, what a great – that's a great question. 
Boy, two really excellent questions on Ask the Stud this week. Let's get our third one in here. Okay, this third one here is from a Craig Faircloth. This is in Claremont, Florida. That's just north of Orlando, I think. It says, how good did it feel to wrestle with your father, especially when you were feuding with Jimmy Golden and your dad laid Jimmy out? <laughs> Ah, this has got, you know, uh, this has got to be my winner. You know, man, I, you know, this, I think this is the winner for this week. This is great. I mean, uh, I wrestled with my dad many times. I think most families that had a son, when you had a father and a son, you started your son out by wrestling with him as a partner. Because you could kind of control the match and you could kind of keep him in the ring when he needed to be and get him out of there when he didn't. And my dad did that for me. In fact, my first wrestling match ever was with my father and it was in uh, Blyville, Arkansas. And my grandmother and my great-grandmother and Roy were there at that match. Me and dad were wrestling. My grandmother and my great-grandmother were excitable fans. She had always been, she used to stick hat pins. She was one of those women that stuck hat pins in people's legs that were giving Roy hell. So she and I, we wrestled against Dick Dunn and Don Carson, two absolutely tremendous talents. And they knew who they were. So Carson gets me in a hammerlock. He's got my arm up my back and he drags me over close to where grandma and great grandma are sitting. And he starts cranking that arm up my back and I'm screaming and they start going, he's just a boy. Get away from, get off of him. Let him go. And he's talking to them now. He's really enjoying it. He goes, he goes, I'm going to break this punk's arms right now. I'm going to break his arm. And boy, they're just, they're foaming. They finally get up out of their seats. They're, they're sitting on the front row and they come to the ring, the side of the ring. They're within two feet of me. They're trying to reach in there and get me so they can drag me away from him. He drags me back a little bit away away from them. He cranks it again. It starts into him again. Come on, Grandma, get in here. You think you can help him? You know, I mean, he's really working them big time. And the police come. They don't know who they are. They come and get them, and they take them out. They escort them out of the building. Roy goes out there and talks to the police, says, hey, that's my grandson, and that's her, her grandson and her great-grandson. Anyway, we have that's one of my first experiences, my first match, and uh, I get my grandma and my great-grandma almost get arrested. And this instance where he's talking about with Jimmy is, is uh, me and Dad wrestle partners against Jimmy, and I can't remember who it was, but Dad, Dad I think, hit Jimmy so hard that he knocked him unconscious. Then we pinned him. That wasn't supposed to be the end of the match. But Dad, sometimes he was very stiff, and he was dangerous when he threw punches. I always thought he was dangerous. I think Jimmy leaned in, and he was bringing it, and it just pow, and that was it. Down he went, boom, he can't get up, he's out. And that was the end of that match. So is it common, you feel like, say, an uncle's in the ring? with his nephew, just for him to have a little fun with him, maybe take liberties, maybe take a shot here, rough up that nephew, just as a way of toughening him up. We've already established that both your father and your grandfather were sort of that way. It's very possible that's what could have been going on inside the ring, yes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's like uh, Jimmy was scared to death. He's like, oh, God, Ronnie. He goes, this is, this is Buddy. He goes, hey, what is he going to do to me? And I said, ah, oh, he'll be okay, man. He ain't going to hurt you. You know, hell, he hurts everybody. That's what he said. He hurts everybody. I, you know, he ain't going to hurt me. So, yeah, that's a certain amount of that that went on in that match. And I'll give you an example. When Rob started, Eddie Graham came to Georgia because Dad says to Eddie, he says, why don't you come up here and work with Robert? And Robert was younger. So Eddie came, put a mask on, and came to Atlanta and worked twice with Rob. Rob says it was the longest, worst experience he ever had in the ring. 
He said Eddie caught him, beat him, slapped him, popped him, kicked him. It Everything hurt. He was stiff as crazy. And I'm sure Dad's been in the back watching it going, ah, dang, that's perfect. I love it. Get him, Eddie. So, hell yeah, that's the way it went, you know. I mean, you got to have fun with guys sometimes and just beat the hell out of them a little more than you wanted to just to get a laugh. <laughs> well, I guess we all get laughs in different ways. Craig Faircloth, congratulations on being the winner from Claremont, Florida. And the Tennessee Stud will be getting with you. And once again, if you want to ask questions, you are encouraged to go to ronfullertennesseestud.com, also on the Facebook page. Like Ron Fuller Welch on Facebook. Again, Ron Fuller Welch on Facebook. And Stud, you had another story about your dad that you wanted to share before we jump out on episode, hard to believe, episode seven. Yeah, you know, we've, we've kind of gone through some of the things he did, but there are other parts of this. Then this has to do with Lester. Lester and dad are very close. And Lester, at this time, he gets dad in the rodeo business. Lester was a rodeo. He was a cowboy. He could rope. He could, he could dog steers. He could ride bulls. He did it all, and I think that's why I wear cowboy hats. Uh, we grew up from a cowboy family. We were from out west. I'm sure uh, Ed, my great-grandfather, probably wore a cowboy hat all the time. And so Lester and Dad got this farm now, and they buy a rodeo. They buy all the bulls. They buy everything that they need to put on a rodeo. We had pecan trees. They had planted 600 pecan trees. They were all small, and they put these Brahma bulls in the same pasture where the pecan trees were. And the bulls were breaking down the pecan trees. They would rub up against them, and the pecan trees are only three or four inches thick. They're young. And they would break them right off at the roots, at the ground. Dad came out, we put triangular fences around them, three posts and a little triangle around the pecan tree so that the bull couldn't get close enough to break the tree off. It turned out that those fences saved me and Robert's life many, many times because we lived in a house that was close to the highway and the barn that we did a lot of our work in was probably close to a quarter of a mile away. And that quarter of a mile was through the middle of this pasture that had the pecan trees and all the Brahma bulls. And these bulls were bad bulls. I mean, they were the type, when they bucked you off, they come looking for you. They didn't look for the exit. They looked for the guy. They wanted to put a horn in you, or they wanted to stomp you, or kick you, or whatever they could do. They were very mean. So we would leave every morning. We'd, he'd say, go do this, go do such and such, and we'd have to cross that field. And the only way we could do it is we had to watch the Brahmas because they looked for us. We were their play toys. And we would start across that field. We would start walking quietly and hoping they weren't looking. We'd catch them far away ways, and they would see us, and here they would come. I mean, they were like stampede was on and we would run and get inside these triangular fences around the pecan trees those bulls would back off and they'd see you in there the pecan tree you're behind but it's only three or four inches thick so they see you there they would run and drive their their heads and their big old horns into the wire and it would screech and make all this nasty nasty sound and they would snort back off and paw and you like, come on, just get out of there where I can get my... So you'd stay in your little pecan tree triangle until they either backed off or they turned and you got their attention on something else, and you'd run to the next one. So we had to do that to get across the pasture in order to get to the barn where we could do our work every day. It was back and forth. He would never take us in the car and run you back there in the car. He said, walk because he knew that we had to deal with the bulls to get there. Now, that's a pretty ex extreme relationship right there, I think, is another picture there. of I don't know whether he wanted the bulls to get us or not. And that's so interesting. So the takeaway on your father, what kind of a, of a dad was he at the end of the day toward you? My dad never, I don't ever remember my dad saying, I love you. He was not an I love you person. But I knew that he loved me, and I had such respect for my dad. My dad was a very smart guy. He was an extremely hard worker. He would get up at 
six o'clock in the morning and he would work on the farm all day. And at three o'clock, he would get in the car and he would drive three hours and he would wrestle. He would drive three hours back and get home at two in the morning. And at six the next morning, four hours later, he'd be up and in the field again. He was a driven guy that just wanted to, he, he, he was, he was into everything. He had his bulldozer and he had his, his rodeo. In fact, he had a rodeo and he announced it on television. He said, come out to the Fuller Ranch. When we were in between Mobile and Pensacola, he announced on Mobile and Pensacola's TV, come out on Easter Sunday. It was an Easter Sunday. I'm going to guess it's 1959 or something. And I'm having a rodeo and you can get in for $2 or whatever it was. And we had it backed up cars on Highway 90, which was a major road. The, the, finally, the Highway Patrol came in and they started directing traffic. And people were walking, parking and walking back to the rodeo arena. We had a rodeo arena. It's Easter Sunday. So he told me and Rob and Jimmy happened to be there. They died a thousand eggs. He told on TV, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt. We're going to give prizes to the winner of the Easter egg hunt. So he gives the eggs to me and Robert and Jimmy the day before the rodeo. He shows us an area that's a pine. It's a little pine tree area. And he says, hide the eggs in this area. When he left, he didn't say how good to hide them. We thought, well, hell, he must mean really hide them. So instead of making it easy for the little kids to find the Easter eggs, we climbed these pine trees and stuck them in the branches and stuff of the pine trees uh, to where there weren't very many of them that could be found. And so everybody shows up. There's 10,000 people there. You know, we're prepared for 2,000. And uh, the bleachers collapse during the deal because there's so many people there. And one part of the rodeo, the bull bucks over to the side of the fence and gets his body up onto the top of the fence and catapults himself and lands in the bleachers on top of the crowd. It's like everything's going wrong. We make a little pony ride, and he builds the equipment. He's a welder, so he welds the equipment. We spend three days trying to walk these ponies, teach them to walk round and round. So we get there. The, within 10 minutes, we start that little pony ride, and we get these kids, little babies on there, and their mamas walking beside them, and they're holding the little child. And This is fun, and, it's, and all of a sudden, those ponies run away. They start running around that thing, It's in the, and they turn the machine upside down. People's bodies are flying. Babies are crying. Mothers are distraught. It's like it's like a the whole day is a disaster. When the Easter egg hunt comes, they announce now's the time for the Easter egg hunt. It looked like a thousand kids going across the field. When my brother and I and Jimmy went up in the top of the barn to watch the deal. They went across the deal. There was a thousand eggs out there. They didn't come back with 10 eggs. People were screaming, there ain't no eggs over there. You didn't even do The whole day was a disaster for him. But it was the type of guy he was. He wanted to have a rodeo. He didn't know anything about the rodeo. He didn't know anything about He just builds these little things, contraptions that were going to walk people. He was Roy in a different way. Yeah, and it's, an, it's kind of an interesting way to put it because my thought kept occurring as you were describing him throughout this entire hour. Roy and your father had this can-do spirit, and without them, wrestling probably doesn't become what it becomes throughout the Southeast and the region where they had a stranglehold on it. Because whereas and it's kind of like today in life, whereas and entrepreneurs are like this, I might look at something and see all the problems in doing it, they looked at something and said, well, we'll have a rodeo here on Easter. We would have think, if we have a rodeo on Easter, what happens if the stands collapse? What happens if 10,000 people show up? What happens if we don't know what we're doing? He thought, let's have a rodeo. And it was that can-do spirit which was able to get the wrestling business off the ground and make it as great as it was into the golden age, don't you think? Yes. I mean, his spirit was, his thought was, let's have one and see what happens. <laughs> I don't think he put a lot of thought in to what could happen. His thoughts was, let's do this and see what happened. It turned out to be a, a bad day for him. But, you know, back in those days, people didn't sue you. 
There was not a single lawsuit out of that. People were there. They The bleachers collapsed. You got a bull that goes over the fence and into the crowd. No telling how many people went to the hospital. And, and no, he did not get a single lawsuit. In this day and time, if something like that were to happen, you'd be broke forever. My other favorite part of that story is you guys do what you think your father wants you to do, and that is torment the kids. Because that's what my grandfather did and my dad. So we're not going to put these eggs where these kids can find them. We're going to torment these kids during the Easter egg hunt. I was expecting you guys to shoot them with a BB gun at some point off the roof. I was waiting for that to come as part of the story. Stud, you guys tormented the kids during the Easter egg hunt, man. <laughs> I'm telling you. You know, and that's a that's a good that's a good perspective. That's a good way to look at it. I mean, we were Welsh boys. We were Welsh boys, and from the Welsh family, and we had a different perspective on things. And I guess we just said, ah, heck, what the heck, man? We don't want them to come back with a single damn egg. In fact, I do believe that we'd actually dug holes in the ground and put some of them in the holes and buried them and covered them with pine straw. It was just like it was. I don't know. You know, revealing this is really great for me because, you know, I don't have a chance to talk. I've not talked to even very many people, even wrestlers that I traveled up and down the road with about these things. And uh, I come from such a crazy background that I just want to pass it along so that people can see that there are some some really wild people out there. Yeah, and from wild people can come some pretty great things because in subsequent podcasts, what we are getting ready to cover includes a lot of that stuff in the late 50s when the territories are smoking hot and we introduce people into the narrative like Jack Pfeffer and some of the wrestlers that we mentioned before, the Joe Scarpas of the world, the Fargos of the world, the Assassins of the world. We talk about some of these great territories. You already mentioned Upper East Tennessee, but we're going to talk a lot about Memphis and Arizona and Denver and Georgia and Florida and even exotic locales like Brazil and Australia. I mean, it's all ahead. There is so much. We have just literally scratched the surface here, Stud. Yes, that's that's true, Tony. I mean, we are just scratching the surface here. And I can't hardly wait. You know, there, there are... I have things I want to talk someday. I'm going to do two two hours on wrestling in the Bahamas, which I think wrestling fans are going to go, that's unbelievable. You know, there are places on earth where wrestling is totally different and, uh, and fans are totally different. And you know, we're going to cover everything. I'm just glad to be here. I'm glad I'm glad to be able to, to open the vault, as you say as you call it, lay it on the table. And that's what I'm doing, program after program. And none of these stories are made up. These are all real. I, I don't know how you can make up some of this stuff, to be quite honest with you. It's a pleasure in, in putting it out there. All I can picture is that little boy getting sucked down that pipe and his dad looking at him going, fight, 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 son, fight, fight, fight. And stud, speaking of which, you know, it'd be real easy for us to Put this behind a paywall as some podcaster, that's the model they're going to. Be real easy for us right now to accept advertising because the downloads and the click, it's just it's incredible how much this is spread in just a month and a half or a little over a month and a half now as this one drops. But Stud, we've decided that we are going to rely on the benevolence of those that love and appreciate what we're doing. And they're out there thousands and thousands strong. And now is the time for the payoff here, Stud. So share with the listener to the podcast how they can help us. Well, you know, I mean, we're providing this program. And, uh, and you know, I, I guess we've mentioned it a couple of weeks. So people probably, you know, they, they can't imagine that that uh, we do something like this and we're not compensated for it. We're doing this out of our own goodness of our heart. And I want to get the story out there. We're the boys. We've given y'all our best match here today. And we're going to do it every time we get in the ring, just like it was when I was actually wrestling in the ring. I want to lay it all out there every time time and if you really enjoy what we do and if you'd like to support us and this is a voluntary this is voluntary if you'd like to support us we have a place on the website it's called studcast supporters if you're willing to give us five dollars a month just to perpetuate this story here and keep this thing going so that we can keep it going and making it available for people then we'll put you on our webpage. 
and you'll be able to go there anytime, tell your friends that you're a supporter. If you do this, it's a nominal amount of money. It's very, very small amount of money. There will be a time when we're going to probably offer you a special program in which we, you know, Tony, I think we talked about it maybe briefly today, maybe something live so that fans can come into that place and be there and give us questions from there and accept questions live on the phone. Do an all-question program in which we cover whatever the fan wants to hear about. And these broadcasts will go to those people that are stud supporters, our studcast supporters, and we hope that everyone is enjoying the program. I certainly enjoy being here. Tony, you're a pleasure to work with. You're such a professional. You do such a great job. It's a great experience. So just tell your friends, if you'd like to support us and be a supporter, that'd be wonderful. If you just like hearing the stories and you don't think it's worthwhile to, to do that, that's wonderful too. We're here to tell the story. And I think someday there's going to be a book about it. There may be many books about it, actually. There's a lot of stuff here. We just appreciate y'all joining us. And you're joining us now by the multi-thousands. It's a growing concept here. It's pretty amazing how many now are, are listening to these studcasts. And I'm very flattered and honored. Yeah, and it's a really tremendous experience on my end as well. I've been in this business close to 30 years now. And I've got to say that this is among the highlights if not the highlight of what I've been involved with, simply because I've always loved the sport of wrestling and to be here in Knoxville, Tennessee, and what was a through time a mecca of the sport and to hear you share these stories and just in this episode alone of Ron Wright and the Chisel and the stories of your father and your child rearing and you just opening up your heart and sharing some of the stories that you did. And that's the vein that we do this. Look. This is 93 years of history we're going to cover. This is four generations. This is thousands and thousands of lives and wrestlers and biographies and stories and people that we're going to get to and folks that eventually we're going to bring on here and have them share, like the Studs brother, Rob, also Jimmy Golden and people like Bob Polk, who through time have just hundreds and thousands, and there are just so many stories to unlock and tentacles that will cross in this thing. But the whole story eventually is going to be told. And that's what we call the Studcast. And I just want to say this one more time. This is your Studcast. It is listener-supported. And so please go to ronfullertennesseestud.com and also go to the Facebook page. On Facebook, Ron Fuller Welch and join and become a friend and jump in here and ask questions like Mark did over in Oak Ridge and Cliff Lawson did in Knoxville and Craig Faircloth, our winner from today. Once again, we want to thank all the supporters behind the scenes. We want to thank David Summers for the great opens, Craig Jenkins for the concept and his guidance here. And for the Tennessee stud, the great Ron Fuller, this is Tony Basilio wishing you a wonderful Studcast Day. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. This Studcast is distributed by Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.